The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics is up next, and we're going to follow Brandon with John Pollock from Post Wrestling. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. But we can't ignore the math, okay? We can't ignore the data. Go on Google Trends, type in your name, then type in mine. You're a straight line. I'm a pyramid. I like the very direct question on that. Television ratings, downward spiral, fire rates. The time is now to turn the math around. And of Pollock and Thurston, I am John Pollock from Post Wrestling, joined by Brandon Thurston of WrestleNomics for another week. And we have no shortage of things to get into today. A lot of news uh, breaking as we speak. And we're going to be going back in time today to the early 90s titan gate scandal and we're going to be joined a little later on with uh, david bixen span but first how are you brandon i'm fine I, I don't know that we've ever done a show that has had so much news breaking as we went there there's been one thing after the other uh, this morning and we're going to be uh, joined by bixen about 15 minutes but we're going to do a quick uh encapsulation of some of the uh, major news items that are breaking i'm sure that we will be spending more time uh, in the future on but uh, let's start off with it with the TNA news, actually, because uh, this morning, this uh, catching some very off guard that Anthem Sports and Entertainment, a global multi-platform media company, announced today the appointment of Anthony Ciccioni as the president of TNA Wrestling. The move aims to further integrate TNA Wrestling into Anthem Entertainment's group, of which Ciccioni is the president, leveraging the entire company's resources to add more value in areas including production, distribution, marketing, viewership, customer acquisition, digital revenue streams, ad sales, and sponsorships, digital tech operations, and more. That is a lot of tasks. Uh, Ciccioni replaces Scott Demore, whose contract with Anthem has been terminated. Demore has been part of TNA since 2003. They don't off and on. He has had many stints with this company over that uh 21-year period. He held many key leadership positions and played a vital role in the growth of the company, leading to its strong industry reputation today, including the successful return of the TNA wrestling brand in 2024. Anthem thanks him for the commitment he brought to the business, the talent, and the people who work outside the ring. So, I mean, number one is, you know, this is certainly one that you want to know what else uh, went into this decision. I mean, you don't just state you know, we have just reached, and they're not lying. They have just reached their greatest successes of the Anthem era over this past month from the rebranding, their performance on the Hard to Kill pay-per-view. Scott Demore has been front and center, and he's terminated, and we're just moving on. So, obviously, there is more to this story, and we will see how much is um, delved into this over the, the days to come. But certainly many questions uh, about this one, I, I would say, and that's probably an understatement, Brandon. Could be business issues, could be something else. But it leaves a lot of questions that we don't know the answer to in terms of they seem to have just begun a relationship with WWE. Um, I assume Scott Demore was an important part of that, and we'll see if that continues, if that's if there's any interruption there with, uh, as we know, Jordan Grace participated in the Royal Rumble recently. Um, 
and Scott Demore led creative for, for, I want to say impact wrestling for TNA and who's going to fill that void. Yeah, that's a, a that's a big question there. Anthony Ciccioni is someone that has been an executive at, well, Anthem and by extension, the Fight Network going back to, I believe, 2008. And for disclosure, uh, I worked under Anthony Ciccioni for many years. He was the head of programming uh, at the Fight Network while I was there. So, I mean, he is now being uh, thrust into uh, this position to oversee uh, the wrestling brand. Prior to the Fight Network, he had worked at the score. So he was involved when the WWE was a broadcast partner with the score up here in Canada for a number of years as well was part of that deal um, that, that brought raw over as well as the, uh, as well as, you know, they, they were basically running all of their programming at that time in the, in the two thousands over on the score. So it, it it's a big shift and you're seeing, you know, people that have come out that are, I mean, Frankie Kazarian has put out a statement very much in support of Scott, the more pwinsider.com had reported today that the talent and staff were, alerted today about this move but i guess some of the some of the contact that was made over the last number of days they were starting to you know put two and two together of people getting involved different executives reaching out and was there going to be a a shift in focus but it comes at a time when tna has been you know they have certainly gained more attention than they have in in some time i mean it's all relative to their their sort of place among the pro wrestling audience but I believe it was, you know, the, like one of their best pay-per-views of the entire Anthem era just happening last month as well. So uh, this is, and the fact that they have this, you know, pseudo relationship with, with WWE as well. Like Scott Moore had his hand in all things TNA from relationships, talent. Um, it's, it's a major move for a company. And if this will be a smooth transition transition or one that is going to be met with a lot of a lot of static among uh, the talent and people that were loyal to scott yeah, two names being raised to me as far as who's who's going to be leading talent and creative are gail kim and tommy dreamer who have been heavily involved already in, in that area another story uh to get to and this is literally just uh breaking as we started going uh to air is a story by Tim Marchman at at Vice regarding uh the Ashley Massaro case that goes back to 2006 and this this news i mean had been out there but getting a little bit more of a specificity here so i'm just going to read the uh, the beginning portion it's a, it's a lengthy article that you can read the entire thing up on the the Vice site Vince McMahon stands accused of covering up the alleged rape of a WWE wrestler who later died by apparent suicide at a military base in Kuwait and of sexually harassing her, according to legal documents and people who knew her. John Laurinaitis, a former WWE executive and McMahon's co-defendant in the explosive civil sex trafficking lawsuit, is also implicated. His lawyer objected to the use of the term cover-up, but confirmed that Laurinaitis knew about the allegations and said most upper-level management was contradicting WWE's claims that executives were never made aware of them. In a sworn affidavit, her lawyer released in 2019 after her death, former wrestler Ashley Massaro said that she was injected with a paralyzing drug and raped by someone representing himself as a U.S. Army doctor while on tour with WWE in Kuwait in 2006. Massaro also said the top executives at the company, including McMahon and Laurinaitis, told her not to talk about the incident and agreed to not talk about it themselves, in part to preserve the company's relationship with the military. In Massaro's affidavit, she said, he told me not to let one bad experience ruin the good work they were doing. Vice News can report for the first time that the Naval Criminal Intelligence Service opened an investigation into Massaro's allegations in June of 2019. 
That investigation was closed in January 2020, according to an NCIS spokesperson. Further information, they said, could not be immediately released as it would need to be obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. In the years since the affidavit was released, new information had come to light to corroborate some of Massaro's claims and cast doubt on WWE's subsequent denial, even before the statement from Laurinaitis's lawyer. Paul London, a former WWE wrestler who dated Massaro when they were both with the company, has also since said that Massaro was herself a victim of McMahon's sexual misconduct. The allegations appear in a new light following the filing of a civil lawsuit accusing McMahon and Laurinaitis of raping a WWE employee and McMahon covering it up by strong-arming her into signing a non-disclosure agreement. Both have denied the allegations um some of your reaction brandon just reading this and i mean this is sort of you know uh, to me a period where there are a lot of people i think emboldened to shine a light on various scandals issues that maybe did not receive the right amount of sunlight at, at the time that there were a lot of unanswered questions when we learned about this this was of course after masaro uh, took her life very tragically and now revisiting it, I mean, this is, you know, a a case that I think a lot of people have had questions about and was recently uh, profiled uh, with, with an audio podcast that you were interviewed for. Yes, um, for for Audible. Um, I, I think you can listen to it as part of the the Amazon Audible subscription. Uh, that was j- just about Ashley Massaro's story. Um, but we, we originally knew about this through the CTE lawsuit, which was led by Constantine Kairos uh, several years ago. Um, but it's been an underreported story in, in terms of, you know, what, what she says she went through. I mean, including from me, it's, it's something that sort of, it, it went under the radar for a lot of people. And, um, but it's definitely relevant now in, in, in light of what's happening with Vince McMahon. And really it was relevant, you know, also in, in 2022. And it's not something that, uh, people brought up as much in, in the context of all the sexual misconduct that has been alleged to have occurred, uh, by Vince McMahon and John Laurinaitis, uh, throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, Ashley Massaro was part of this case that involved around like 60 ex-performers that had been suing the WWE. This was led by uh, Constantine Kairos. This was the suit that was thrown out in 2018. Kairos, um, you know, he appealed it. He he tried to go all the way to the Supreme Court to... He is still trying to go to the Supreme Court. Well, he... I mean, this guy, this lawyer, I mean, like Jerry McDivitt, I mean, like just took Constantine Kairos to town and just dismissing um, his, his claims in this. And I think it really just, just painted the suit in a, in a negative light. Constantine Kairos was left with like a sizable portion of legal fees on the WWE's behalf. Like we're talking like over $300,000 that he was to pay in WWE legal fees at the end of this entire thing. And yes. this was, this was, this affidavit was part of the case, but kind of got swept into all of these claims, including like the ones in that case, primarily focusing on uh, brain trauma that performers sustained and whether WWE had had no, had knowledge of the damage that they were doing to themselves at that time. This coming in proximity with the with the NFL case with players uh, going against the NFL and reaching a around seven hundred sixty five million dollar settlement. Yeah, it was, a, it was a case broadly about alleged mistreatment of, of workers that was trying to. It was, it was really getting inspiration from the NFL case that you mentioned and the NFL CTE suit. And, you know, people know that through the, the concussion movie and things like that. But, yes, Constantine Kairos is trying to get the, the Supreme Court to hear his appeal. And I, I, my understanding is that he doesn't have to actually make any payments until all the, all the appeals have been dismissed. 
Uh, so we're going to be joined by uh, David Bixenspan in a couple of minutes. And again, we're going to be going back to discuss the, the Titan Gate scandal and sort of give everybody sort of a background of how this was reported out, the key figures involved, some names you may be more familiar with than others, but we're hopefully going to add a, a lot of context to that story. Before we go back 30 or so years, Brandon, just in terms of the the immediate um, WWE and they are holding a press conference in, on Thursday in Las Vegas. This is in coordination with Super Bowl week in town. What kind of expectations do you have of this press conference? This is certainly being positioned as more of a pep rally than it is a press conference. That is sort of my ex- expectation of what this is going to be on Thursday. But regardless, there are important people that are going to be, in theory, available to the media. And all this of that is will- advertised. Paul Levesque is advertised. Wayne Johnson will be there. This is, as you've mentioned, Nick Khan's hometown on top of it. And this will really be a an eye-opener in terms of, is this this uh, this cloud over the company as they are moving into their hard WrestleMania promotion with its biggest star it can have for WrestleMania in Dwayne Johnson? Or are they going to be distanced from the headlines of the past few weeks when it comes to probably more of a, of a mainstream lens that we're going to be viewing it through on Thursday. Yeah. Well, if, if Dwayne Johnson and Paul Levesque are made available to the media and if they are made available to, there are wrestling reporters who are going there who I trust will ask them questions about the Vince McMahon lawsuit and, and which is not, we should probably stop calling it a Vince McMahon lawsuit. It's a W lawsuit as well. Um, But, and it's, it's interesting to think about whether or not there's going to be sports media who are going to, be present and maybe ask questions, maybe take this story seriously. Um, we'll see. I, I'm really curious too about whether this is just a sort of a prediction speculation on my part, if this is going to be a WrestleMania location announcement too. Um, it wouldn't be surprising to see WrestleMania get booked for, because we still don't know where WrestleMania is going to be next year. And that's right. Coming up on the time where WrestleMania is about to happen for this year. So it wouldn't be surprising if, you know, if Nick Khan's hometown was the home of WrestleMania next year. Um, still waiting to see if we'll, we'll be here from Nick Khan. I understand Seth Rollins took a question today uh, in, in a media interview about the, the scandal. So it would be, you know, if, if I were you know, somebody in, in um, WWE, I would, and, and you're seeing the number two officer have to deal with this. You're seeing Shawn Michaels have to take questions about it. Uh, some talent take questions about it. Would be nice if the number one officer in, in the company took some questions on it. And we haven't even talked yet about the, uh, the, the Hollywood Reporter article that came out this morning, which um, talks about how, among other things, Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro urged Vince McMahon to resign uh, when he did resign a couple of Fridays ago. That's right. Um, the Hollywood Reporter story, it sort of gives you, I think, what everyone had sort of deduced that the the Slim Jim pause in their relationship was definitely a contributing factor. And that that Friday evening, it was Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro calling up Vince McMahon and basically stating it would probably be a good idea for you to resign, which Vince McMahon did. And then Slim Jim was back on board. But it it still leaves a lot of questions, I would state, at at the feet of Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro in terms of their knowledge of what, what this was, the fact that they were in the midst of completing this merger. When we learned of the, of the seizure of Vince McMahon's phone, what was being looked into, they were looking for, for text messages and emails. Like what, what degree of knowledge did, did those two have? And was it a case of, this is a storm that, there's some very choppy waters, but we feel that we can we can navigate the, these waters as as bad as it looks. That we can we can get through the worst of this and 
earlier this month, realizing that, no, this is going to be a a resignation was necessary. I think those are very relevant questions for those two individuals. Yeah, we did get our, our one of our first uh, puns that I've seen as part of this story is that the headline uh, from the Hollywood Reporter is how Vince McMahon got TKO'd. Uh, I think News Nation has been uh, been using some puns around this story, too. Uh, the other thing that people are taking notice of and I, I took notice of uh, from this story is that uh, this, this part of the article that says sources say that even while McMahon was no longer an active member of the executive team, and this is talking about the great interregnum after the time Vince has resigned in July 2022, but before the time in January 2023 when he made his return. So it's saying sources say that even while McMahon was no longer an active member of the executive team, he would weigh in on creative decisions, reaching out to employees by email and text with suggestions, um, which is sort of contradictory. I think we got a lot of mixed messages around that time as far as how involved Vince McMahon was in creative. You have Nick Khan on the Bill Simmons show saying that he, you know, he wasn't really involved at all in, in anything. Um, you have Paul Levesque right after his, well, I guess is a, a, a different uh, portion of time. Paul Levesque right after Vince McMahon did make his return in early 2023 saying it's great to have him back. Um, and, and later at the uh, SummerSlam press conference sort of saying, saying things to the effect that we, you know, we stand on on the shoulder of giants and it's, it's always great to have his advice around. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, reassuring people that he really won't be involved. I'm thinking of the Ronda Rousey tweet where, where she's, you know, saying that as long as Bruce Pritchard is around, Vince will always uh, have some influence. Um, and he still owns 11 or 12% of the, the company's stock. And there is some discussion in this Hollywood reporter ar- ar- article about, what influence he may still be able to have. I mean, I don't think he's going to have a lot of influence here, but as, as long as he does have some stock and as long as so many of his allies were with the company, you know, it's, it's questionable. It's not. And it's, he is the largest individual shareholder in TKO. And, you know, th- those are comments to me that when a Nick Khan states, anyone who thought he was really gone, they don't know Vince McMahon. Well, it might really be the case now, but you have invited that skepticism that, um, like this is a company that I, I don't think you can just take a, a public statement at face value like that when, um, you know, this is this is act two of the I'm stepping away uh, performance, um, even if you deem it like this is a legitimate one and, and much more you know s- significant even than the one from 2022. But we're now going to uh, welcome in our guest, uh, you know, all of his work from between the sheets that we have a. Uh, often cited when navigating the uh, the Titan Gate scandal. David Bixenspan returning here to uh, Pollock and Thurston here on a very slow news day. How are you, Dave? Hello, Bix. Yeah, definitely kind of a slow news day. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the I mean, the Ashley Massaro thing, I guess we're going to learn more about once FOIA requests are in, but who knows how long that would take. Um, Why don't you explain to people a Freedom of Information Act request as probably one of the uh, the utmost leaders in this space when it comes to them, David, and like what kind of process you're looking for if you yourself were to make that request today? Like this could be years, correct? Yes, it could. It really depends on what agency, how overburdened they are, um, what kind of fre- potentially friendly records officer you get. There's a lot of factors. Um so, I mean, it's with the information we have now that there was an investigation, that makes it easier, though, because that gives you something concrete. You're not stabbing in the dark at all. And sometimes you can find 
interesting things from just kind of random requests too. Like when I, I did a request for Pat Patterson's immigration file when he died, turns out I get all these records about how they tried to deport him for being gay in the sixties. You know, you never know. It's one of the reasons why if you're pursuing this stuff as a Brandon knows, it's best to have a lot of irons in the fire. Mm-hmm. You know, and, obviously and would you it, say like knowing that there's ahead. an investigation would allow you to make a more specific request. Cause what's happened to me a couple of times is the, mm-hmm. the organization will come back and say, this is overly broad. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we're able to be very specific now and just be like this investigation that, you know, the spokesperson for NCIS confirmed to vice news. That's something concrete. You can point to that. It's, it makes it much easier. Um, you know, I had tried digging around in 2019. Um, I had reached out. I was, I tried to find who would be the right military branch to talk to. I don't remember exactly how I got there. I was trying to jog my memory going through some emails on my Gmail account, but I was pointing the direction of military central, central command, CENTCOM. And I had a dialogue with their PR person. So, I mean, this is. This is like the week of and coming out of the first double or nothing, you know, the first AEW show, just for context. Like mm-hmm. I'm sending emails to WWE and stuff like in my while I'm in a cab to JFK Airport. You know, as this story was breaking with Kairos putting out the affidavit. And CENTCOM, like they were in a dialogue with me, their PR people, and this is, you know, with me trying to cover it for Deadspin at the time. And they said they were trying to find the right branch who would have the right information based on it being 13 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And then they kind of just stopped getting back to me. And I had also, I had filed a FOIA request for, I think it was also with CENTCOM, but trying to cast a wider net, like, you know, list of staff and stuff, because that's stuff that's not bound by privacy regulations, unlike most FOIA stuff. Military stuff, whether or not someone served, etc., that is public. So I tried asking for, you know, who was stationed there at a given time, their birthdays, because of the whole thing with Ashley Massaro saying in the affidavit that her attacker, you know, it was being claimed that it was his birthday. Stuff that they should have, and it wasn't it wasn't denied as overly broad, it was denied as them not having it. But now knowing it might not have been the right agency, maybe it should have been Navy and then also NCIS. That changes things. He could have just been the wrong place, bureaucracy, whatever. You know, if you get the right person, you hope that they would. What's the word they use? Not forward. But when they send it to another agency or if you request something and the pages overlap with something for another agency, you hope they would send it to the right place. But that doesn't always happen. Well, we will. uh spend time in the uh in, in the coming days and weeks uh, looking more at that story our primary focus today is going back to look at the titan gate scandal uh we're going to give everyone the disclaimer that th- this is going to contain you know descriptions of, of sexual assault some including minors so uh this is definitely uh, going to be you know uh, want to give that warning out in advance of what we're going to be talking about uh throughout this show and uh bix we Certainly, you were the person we wanted to reach out for. Like yourself and Chris Zellner have done a really terrific job uh, detailing this, and we'll mention it frequently uh, to go check out. It's it's a four part series, hours and hours going into uh, this case, and as much as it is going through the details, the media coverage, I do find it also interesting. Sort of just a sociological look at 
how the public grasps these types of difficult stories, especially at a time in the early 90s. And there is just so much to me that we can learn today amidst this this current um, WWE scandal as it relates, where in the early 90s, Bix, like we had sort of, this all begins as sort of the Ring Boy scandal, and it materializes into what is the steroid distribution trial. But we have all these different uh, factors. And at, at the core of it was just, to me, was the, the child sex scandal. And that was, I think, somewhat, it has been lost to history of people that don't fully understand the details. It's complicated. And and I also don't know how many people are wanting to dive into this kind of content, but it's very, very necessary when learning what this company has been through and now what we are seeing with the allegations that are now coming to light. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where to start. I mean, one thing, you know, we should also mention, even though like the criminal investigation into WWE that led to the steroid trial, it, it started with the ring voice stuff. Like we know that for sure. Um, the genesis of what ends up with Tom Cole and other ring boys coming forward, really, you can say, is Hulk Hogan lying about his steroid use on Arsenio Hall. Because that led to Phil Mushnick writing about it in the New York Post and other scrutiny on the WWF. Tom Cole, eating breakfast with his older brother Lee, sees Mushnick's story in the New York Post. And then is like, oh, you don't know the half of it with what's going on there. Tells him about the abuse, and they get in touch with Mush. Eh. Mushnick eventually puts them in touch with Jeff Savage of the San Diego Union Tribune. They eventually get a lawyer, and that really kicks everything off. You know, it's all intertwined, um, and that's something I think people really miss a lot of the time. That the steroid scandal directly begat the Ring Boy scandal and the other Titan Gate scandals, which then led to the other steroid trial. But the, I think the thing people miss is Vince being investigated for the steroid stuff was not directly coming from the Dr. Zahorian trial. No. Like, it was completely separate. Like, the, um, the federal prosecutors in Pennsylvania, it seemed, had no interest in going after Vince or WWE. I so, want to read just um, – I, I just want to read, like, a brief um, excerpt. This is from the – San Diego Union Tribune. This was the Jeff Savage article that Bix just mentioned from March the 11th, 1992, as it relates to uh, the figures that we were just mentioning. Allegations of sexual harassment are not confined to adults. Two males said that as adolescents, they were sexually molested by WWF employees. Tom Cole, now 20, started working for the WWF in 1985 as a ring boy, a gopher in Yonkers, New York, when he was 13 years old. Cole said that while on tour with the wrestling show, a WWF employee would film Cole with a video camera while fondling the boy's feet and masturbating. Quote, he had a foot fetish, Cole said. He would play with all the young boy's feet for hours at a time. Chris Lose was 16 when he began working as a $100 a night ring boy in Niagara Falls in 1989. He said in an interview with the WWF employee, cited by Cole, stepped on his foot upon meeting him, and when Lowe said his foot hurt, the employee removed the boy's shoe and began rubbing. Quote, boys are getting propositioned and played with all the time. You sort of put up with it because you can make a lot of money. Cole said he was harassed by several WWF employees. He said he was grabbed in the genitals numerous times by another top WWF official, but never said anything because he was scared. Cole said the sexual harassment continued unabated until he was fired in February of 1990 after rebuffing an advance by still another WWF official. 
In that incident, Cole said he was driven to the WWF official's house when he was asked to smoke marijuana, snort cocaine, and have homosexual sex. When Cole rejected his advances, the official refused to take him home, Cole said. So Cole slept in the WWF official's van in the driveway. The next day, Cole was fired. So that that is just like uh, Tom Cole's specific story as well as Chris Lowe's. And they are sort of the, the two... I would say focal figures of of this scandal, Tom Cole, I would say being the most prominent um, in terms of him being the public face of this scandal, Bix, and someone that had just like a very traumatic life as a result of, of these incidents and sadly taking his life a number of years ago. But like he, what from your understanding, like this was not contained to two people, but those are the two names that are frequently those are the public names that are out there. Well, yeah. And, you know, I always found it interesting that Jeff Savage didn't include any of those names in the article. I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it was probably the union tribunes lawyers or something like that, but um, I mean, it's actually three and this is something, this is something, you know, I was asked to get into and we really probably should, but as far as the whole was Pat Patterson involved thing, um, so the short version, the one who was actually, you know, serially molesting him was Mel Phillips, who was ring announcer and also head of one of the rank groups. Um, when WWE and Vince McMahon sued Phil Mushnick in the New York Post, they took, even though it wasn't his reporting, they took issue with... Um, the claim about the, you know, the fondling the feet and masturbating. And they had asked Tom in a deposition, oh, did that happen? And he's like, oh, I never saw Mel Phillips masturbate, blah, blah, blah. And then the excerpt WWE filed in court cut off at a point where it seemed like he was about to explain what he actually said to Jeff Savage. What we know from the complaint he sent WWE but never filed in court from what he said in other interviews, from what other ring boys said in interview, other interviews, was that Phillips would take Tom's and the other boys' feet and rub them against his um, crotch. Um, which also is something that's really important to stress because I think a lot of people, and part of this was Tom dramatized in later interviews, not really wanting to get into specifics, I think for a long time, a lot of fans who were aware of it thought that Mel Phillips didn't necessarily do anything illegal. They were like, oh, did he just, oh, we just rubbed their feet or whatever. I mean, Jerry McDevitt sent me a letter in response to the questions for the Business Insider article, I believe, that kind of characterized it that way. You know, um, I know Tom, he never ended up sending it to me, but claimed that McDevitt had sent him an email that characterized it that way. You know, just, oh, you just rubbed your feet. Um, so that's something people really need to understand. But then the, you know, the more systemic aspect, I mean, for one, and this got lost to time. We talk about it extensively on those podcasts we did. Uh, Vince McMahon told both Phil Mushnick and Dave Meltzer on the record that he had suspected something like that was up with Phillips, found his relationship with children peculiar and unnatural, and had fired him in early 1988 over it. Then brought him back several weeks later, as long as he agreed to stay away from kids, which he did. Um, one and thing, and I, you think ahead. it's kind of re- remarkable, like the, the similarities in in Vince's temporary absence for for several months from 
from WWE more recently and the as you're starting to get into here, Pat Patterson takes a sabbatical from WWE. He's eventually brought back and, and Mel Phillips as well, right? Yes. I mean, even with Mel Phillips too, in 92, they kind of tried to obscure whether or not he had resigned, been fired or was suspended. And later on, eventually they say he was suspended and then eventually fired. Um, you know, there were rumors that came out in some of the newsletters, I forget which at the time, that uh, he was still coming to WWE headquarters and eating in the employee cafeteria and stuff. So there was also that side of it. But, you know, one of the things like, you know, we dwell on this in the podcast, but rightfully so, that just became lost to history. God knows why. It just barely ever gets brought up in the newsletters and history retrospectives and stuff after. Was that Vince said that on the record to Dave and Phil? You know, he basically admitted the central conceit of all the reporting on this, which is what did they know and when did they know it? Um, like not necessarily and Vince, like volunteering this information. Like yes. I, like that is, I mean, astounding when you think about it, that here he is like, this is not just him in a, you know, a private conversation that somehow is disclosed because of like emails being, you know, under subpoena. This is him on a, on, on a call with Bill Mushnick and then Dave Meltzer and stating on the record that, they let him go because of his their concern about Mel Phillips with kids and then feeling that, you know, they wanted to give him another chance. He felt lost without being in the mix of pro wrestling. So they brought him back with the caveat that you stay clear of kids. Which is unnatural, I think, is, is Vince, Vince's. Peculiar and unnatural, yes. Or at least that's that's how Phil paraphrased it. You know, he didn't record the call or anything like that. And, and this uh, is before Vince goes on Larry King. I don't know if I'm getting ahead, but this, this is roughly yes. This is a and, he, and, and Vince on Larry King denies Vince denies knowledge of any of this. That it that is that and what he says on Donahue a few days later is what leads to um, Phil writing about that. He had not written about that part initially. I, he explains in his deposition in the lawsuit because he kind of he thought Vince was being straight with him about wanting to clean up the company. And I guess was willing to kind of wait on using that. Um, what, what's the difference Bix? If you just throw out that, that hypothetical, if that call is recorded, if you hear in Vince's words, how much different is that? At the time now or both now. Now I think that would I mean I think that would drive him and, and and everyone else that had any idea out of the company. Like it just to me is I mean in in some ways it's like just again looking to the present like the the 2022 Wall Street reporting I mean it is you know it's it's horrific but it's in this broad language that you can have your defenders that can rationalize this. The Janelle Grant lawsuit, I mean, it's just in such clear detail and you've got these right. damning text messages that it just it gets to a point where it's it's inescapable when it's staring you in the face. And it seems like there is that uh, in terms of this was reported. This is this is in the it, this is in the New York Post, like this this reporting of an on the record yes. discussion with Vince McMahon. But it's almost as if like the public either is not aware of it or just is not enough of a smoking gun that the audio of that would play so much differently if you're hearing that in Vince McMahon's voice, especially yes. juxtaposed with him on Larry King, where he's denying any knowledge of any of this. Right. And, you know, something Dave Meltzer made a great point about at the time, too, was like, 
even like Dave's coverage of what Vince told him was weird, but regardless, he, he like he made a great point. If Vince had come out and said something like, I heard rumors, but it was only ever rumors, I couldn't act on rumors, blah, 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 he would have come off so much better, but he didn't. He didn't want to admit and even that. Um, something we need to stress too. Um, as much as WWE and Jerry McDevitt and Vince McMahon and Linda McMahon have tried to pick apart about things that have been written about the Ring Boy scandal over the years, not once, not in suing Phil Mushnick in the post, not in anything, you know, the spokesperson Steve Planamenta said at the time, not in Jerry McDevitt's, you know, like letter to me in Business Insider, not once have, you know, oh, and not in Phil's deposition either, where it's the probably the most civil and least contentious part of the deposition. Not once have they ever disputed that Vince said that to them. Ever. Like, this is not in dispute that he said this. Like, you know, when I... That he said he had knowledge. Yeah, or at least suspected. Which, you know, we can get deeper into their other things, too. You know, there are the claims that on at least one occasion, Phillips was caught sexually assaulting a boy in a car in the parking lot outside of a TV taping in Allentown. There's that. Which, you know, Superstar Graham, who has credibility issues, but... It's not, he's not the only person saying this, said that he saw the aftermath of this and the security bringing Phillips to Vince and Vince, you know, junior and senior and saying they'd take care of it. Um, Bruno Sammartino was not there, but said on the talk shows and in his deposition in the Mushnick lawsuit that it was something everyone was talking about at the time. So there's that. I mean, there's other stories if you go back even further. You know, John Arezzi wrote about in his newsletter at the time how he had been friends with Mel in the mid-70s, and they drifted apart because of weird stuff with, like, Mel constantly wanting to wrestle, like, John's young neighbors and stuff like that. And Mel having a video camera in 1976 and showing it off to everyone, you know? And, and I mean, as you mentioned, like, he is in charge of, you know, hiring all of these ring boys. And I mean, the picture that is painted, like I feel we have only seen a sliver of the depravity of Mel Phillips that this guy had contacts of children all over the country, especially in, in the Northeast where he was based. And you mentioned the video camera. There is a a tape that the FBI got a hold of, of him with, with some of the ring boys as well. The contents of which we have not seen, but at least paints a disturbing picture. I mean, yeah, like like this was an individual that it is like the the warning signs were very, very extreme. And we should point out too, WWE had a copy of that videotape too. Of what videotape? The Philip the videotape of Phillips and the boy in the ring before a show, which you know, it when I initially got the FBI records, you know, from all of this, they were redacted enough that you couldn't quite tell what they were saying. But there was stuff about how the videotape did not really have enough evidentiary value because it was in public. There were enough alternate explanations, blah, blah, blah. Well, I had them reprocessed the specific pages about Phillips, including the, the stuff about the videotape. And then it turns out the videotape is of him putting a boy's foot in his own crotch. So literally what all of the ring boys were accusing him of. And somehow they didn't find this compelling enough. And the FBI had this. And again, you know, there's a whole story behind this that we don't have time to get into now. 
Um, if you could link my Substack post about it in the show notes, that would probably be the easiest way to address it. But like, yeah, WWE had gotten a copy of the videotape um, long before the FBI knew of it or uh, had gotten a hold of it. You know, that it was a former employee who I don't know if he was just shooting around the ringside area and caught this in the background or whatever. But this whole thing about like, uh, like they like traded like autographs and free tickets with him to get a copy of the video. So like they can't like, especially after the fact, they can't say they didn't know where this didn't happen or disregard it, especially now that we know what was on the videotape. And that it was exactly what the various ring boys had accused Phillips of. And, and Mel Phillips is just one person who's a- alleged yeah. to be a perpetrator in the spring boy scandal. So there's, there's others as well, right? Yes. So they didn't name it at the time. I do know the name, but I won't, I don't know if I would be right to give it. Um, the New York daily news did a story in 94 that named uh, that it, it's confusing to read but they say a ring crew chief um, molested another ring boy, but it, they're not referring to Phillips. It was a different ring crew chief, apparently. At least, you know, that's what the Daily News reported. Um, then also, uh, so Terry Garvin was Mel Phillips' direct supervisor. Terry Garvin, for those who don't know, had been a wrestler. Um, I mean, was childhood friends with Pat Patterson in Montreal. And he... He was something of like a territorial star in the 60s and 70s, but as the 70s went on, became more of like a sometimes wrestler, but also like utility office guy for different territories, including Kansas City and Amarillo. And it, how do I put this? Like, was known to people in wrestling as being gay, was known to people in his non-wrestling personal life, personal life, including his wife as being straight. And just also was a predator. He's the one who, you know, was you talked about with the Union Tribune article as far as uh, Tom going to his house and all that. Um, you know, a couple different advances towards Tom. One when he was 16, one when he was 19, um, firing him after he turned him down the second time when he had just hired him to work uh, at the WWE warehouse. And, you know, there are various other allegations. You know, there was... This went before WWE, but Barry Orton talking about when he was in Amarillo um, on a weekend where Patterson came in to work a tag team tournament that uh, he, when he was 19 years old, he was sitting between Patterson and Garvin in the backseat of a car on a road trip. And they both groped him in his crotch and literally tore his pants down the middle. And he like fled the car and I mean, Dave Meltzer said Ted DiBiase was in the car, confirmed that it happened, but characterized it as a rib. And, and do, so we have information showing that Vince may have known about Mel Phillips. Um, do we have information that, that shows that he knew what was happening with Terry Garvin or with others? I mean, watch every house show in that era where there are jokes on commentary about the Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense. Which indicates that it was just something that was known. If, if they're joking about it on commentary, it, it yes. must have been so well known in the back. I mean, there that, were jokes that. on TV about Phillips less often, too. You know, there's a episode of Primetime Wrestling where they're closing, talking about the next week's matches. And uh, Grill Monsoon says something like, and as Mel Phillips would say, that'll knock your socks off. Yeah. And uh, 
And I mean, you guys do like um, bring this up in, in the series with Chris too, about the idea. Was it, was it knowing, okay, he's gay and they're making these open jokes. Right. Is it homophobia or is it like, there is a little bit of plausible deniability, but there's that. But I mean, I think in this case, like that benefit of the doubt is not earned with me. I just, it's, I just think it's like, you know, you, you try your best to like understand some of this, but I just, that benefit's not there with me um, when it comes to just how open uh, that this was. And I guess that, that brings us to like the the third name in all of this. And it's the one that I think uh, evokes the most uh, resistance from some. And that is like Pat Patterson's involvement here. And this gets clouded because like he has had several, like two, two claims against him that were one in terms of, uh, superstar Billy Graham that he later recanted and admitted he made up against Patterson. Yes, and then that have, he uh, he said he witnessed Pat groping a ring play. Yeah. Yes, and then you have Murray Hodgson, which we we will we will dedicate some time to Murray Hodgson. We we will get there, but there were also credible claims against Pat Patterson, and let's not forget that he is also a vice president in the company on top of this. And I think this is where we get into. Like I feel people that are close to, to Pat, new Pat, view it from the lens of just wrestling ribbing. And that is divorced from the real world that sees like what what some of these actions were, especially when we're we're getting into the case of of Tom Cole. Yeah. So I don't even know where we start with this. So I mean, let's start with what the other allegations are that are I mean, real quick, we should say what the Murray Hodgson allegation was, which was basically just Patterson kind of went at him with like a quid pro quo sexual harassment, made a pass at him. Hodgson turned him down and got fired. Um, and that Hodgson, you know, his lawyer called him con man, et cetera. We'll get into that more later. Um, you know, as far as other allegations, we already talked about Barry Orton. Um, Barry Orton also said uh, when he talked to Tom Cole's lawyers, which he actually did swear to under penalty of perjury. Um, he talked about stuff in the WWF too, nothing criminal, but talking about Patterson standing outside the showers and like basically gawking at wrestlers and staring at their crotches and licking his lips as they came out of the shower. Um, so there's that. There was Karate Kid Chris Tube, you know, one of the, I'll say quote unquote midget wrestlers. I know it's not the correct term anymore, but in wrestling parlance, it's the easiest way to explain how who they we're are about. Yes, um, that Patterson had made an inappropriate pass at him, and he turned him down. And that you know his mentor, and as it turned out, he didn't know at the time his biological father, Lord Littlebrook, tried intervening. And their claim was that after the complaints and stuff, that it led to them, you know, that whole troop of wrestlers getting kind of blackballed from the WWF. And the Bushwhackers replacing them as like the designated comedy wrestlers, you know, when the Bushwhackers were brought in. So there was that. Um, there was uh, so Tom Cole. Tom Cole all alleged that Patterson had groped him on some occasions. And, you know, if you read what he wrote in his complaint, like he says, it happened throughout his time working for the WWF. Um, so that's another. I feel like I'm forgetting one more. Um, oh, there was the Tom thing Hanks. where Paul. Oh, Tom Hankins. Thank you. Uh, Tom Hankins, you know, he went on Donahue after sending a letter to Dave Meltzer that ends up running in the Observer. 
saying that he was just shooting the breeze with Patterson and Mike LaBelle and Andre the Giant at the bar uh, in Los Angeles after a sports arena show. And after about an hour, he's asking Pat, like, hey, would I be able to get some work doing jobs for you guys? Like, making it clear, like, he's not asking for a job. He's just asking for some work, you know, as enhancement talent. And we should know, too, even though this is a time where they're exclusively taping the TV in Poughkeepsie and Brantford, Ontario, they were flying in job guys that weren't local, you know, if they felt they were good enough. Like, you know, Rusty Brooks was a regular. Rusty Brooks was based in Florida. Um, I think Joe Mirto, I think Chris was an, Chris brought up when we did the podcast, was another one who was not local. So the idea that someone could get brought in to do enhancement work, even if they weren't local to, you know, pick to Poughkeepsie or Ontario, like that was valid to ask about that. And the way he told it was that Patterson said something like, oh, you know, it, you're, you have two chances, slim and none. And then he was like, oh, yeah, there is one chance. And it was to have it go upstairs to the, in the hotel and have a sexual encounter. And Hankin said no. And then the following month at the next sports arena show, he had always been allowed in the back to hang out. Uh, this time, Patterson kicked him out and had him physically removed. Um. It's not in dispute that this happened. You know, there were a bunch of witnesses that confirmed it to Dave Meltzer and others at the time. It was characterized a lot as Pat just kind of grandstanding and joking around in a bar, that it was something he had done before. But I can buy that to a point, and I think we'll get into this more when it comes to Patterson. Um, The fact that he kicked him out of the locker room the next month, I feel like, says a lot. That it was intended as a genuine pass and not just being like, oh, the the only way you could get work here is to blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. you know? So there's that. Um, oh, there's the Paul Roma thing that he said in a, an interview with John Clark and Wrestling Flyer where he was at a party, I believe, at Patterson's house and talking to Patterson and his partner, Louis Dundero. And Pat told him that if he really wanted to get in the head in the company – that Roma should sleep with an unnamed executive that was not Pat. So there's also that. So there, I mean, there is a lot more there, but, you know, and well, and I should say, including tying him directly to Tom Cole, including at times when Tom Cole was underage, but because so, how many people ever get a false allegation, much less two? So it just clouds it for everyone. To, to put some context into, into where Pat Patterson is in the company at that time, and we're talking like 1992 still, right? He's a vice yeah. president in the company. WF is a much smaller company than it is today. So how how close to the top is Pat Patterson at this time? I mean, he, he had always been referred to as being the booker for many years going into that point, even though obviously Vince is the booker. But if, you know, you watch those shows when he's genuinely out of the company for the next several months, that TV is bad in a way their TV had not been, you know, going up to that point. It's very aimless, very directionless going into SummerSlam. Like, it becomes clear, you know, just how much of a role he had in the booking and how much that presence was, you know, not being there was being felt. Um, You know, when I would talk to wrestlers in WWE when Patterson was still around, they would tell me, like, he is so much more responsible for the success of this company than anyone realizes outside the company. 
like making it very clear like that he arguably i guess was much more the wrestling brain than Vince was so i mean he was high up you know he 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 also directly oversaw Terry Garvin Terry Garvin was kind of part of talent relations it's a little murky but he i guess what would i mean i don't think it would be unreasonable to say he was the equivalent of Paul Levesque before Paul Levesque's weird demotion thing after his heart scare. In a much smaller company, yeah. 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 So when it comes to Tom Cole, the expectation is that a, a suit is going to be filed. You mentioned the the affidavit, and it seemed like this was pretty much up to the finish line, but ultimately the suit does not get Filed. Can you just speak to what are the machinations that are going on specific to Tom Cole during that March 92 period that does see him come back to the company and the suit ends up not um, not proceeding? So the whole the way we even get there before he talks with Vince McMahon or anyone else in the company is strained. So initially his lawyer is Joseph Petrura, who's just a local Utica lawyer that they found in the phone book and something, you know, he said to me in the couple times we talked and that, you know, his older brother Lee said numerous times when we've talked was that one of their biggest regrets was replacing him. And I'll explain that in a second. Just that this guy was a pit bull, how devoted to the case he was and not, you know, and how it seemed like he was the right guy for the job. However, in the meantime, they're getting hassled by Brooke Skolsky, one of Geraldo Rivera's producers, for now it can be told, about giving an interview. And according to the Coles, basically saying, I will camp out on your front lawn unless you give me an interview. Um, as that's going on, she's kind of pressuring them to get a more big shot lawyer. Um at first kind of points them in the direction of John Pelosi Jr., I believe, who I think was her boyfriend at the time, who is unable to do it because he's working at a firm that handles some matters for WWE. So he directs them to uh, Alan Fuchsberg, who did not do a very good job, but they – He's the one who drafts the complaint, sends it to WWE, but doesn't file it. They start settlement talks. Vince lies on Larry King about having heard from them and all that because the, it was earlier that day that the complaint had been faxed. Um, and then over the weekend, leading into the Donahue taping, uh, they're negotiating. And as Tom described it, you know, including in the interview he gave Paul MacArthur for Western Perspective in 1999, which is something everyone should read, mm-hmm. um, he just Fuchsberg would just keep on taking breaks with Jerry McDevitt and leave Tom alone with uh, Vincent Linda McMahon. And, you know, during that, you know, Vince brings up his own childhood abuse and tries to relate to Tom on that. And eventually Tom is just like, you know, as they're kind of coming to an impasse, Tom just blurts out, you know what? I just want my job back which he later said was the stupidest thing he could have said because it wasn't even, it wasn't something he was trying to do in the first place. And from that effort to break him down, they make a deal for not a lot of money 
Um, you know, it's allegedly back pay for the warehouse job and getting fired from that unjustly. And he gets rehired. And, you know, then in, at the Donahue taping, he's in the studio audience sitting between Linda McMahon and Miss Elizabeth with the idea being that if someone brings up his name, Vince will have his quote unquote Perry Mason moment and be like, oh, we've, we've settled with Mr. Cole. He's here in the audience today and all that. But. Uh, and if that Barry happens, or- I, I think this story is almost dead. I think everyone looks yes. at this as the, the, the total circus. Like they're already looking at this with a skeptical eye. And if that happens, I think it's like, why are we even giving this the time of day? This is all this is this is Lawler and Andy Kaufman, essentially. Like that's what you're turning this into. And I think that was very much Vince McMahon's plan was to just yes. make a performance out of this. And yes, Tom Cole never appears on screen on the Phil Donahue show, correct? You there is a sh- a crowd shot it's where you actually me. get a obvi- not knowing it's him. It, they're fairly close up on him and Elizabeth, but otherwise, no. It's after the show. Vix is gone uh, for every frame. <laughs> I didn't know. Phone. Someone else caught it and sent it to me on Twitter a couple of years ago. Um, but. But yeah, so what happened was was that Barry Orton had lost contact with the Coles, had a bad feeling, and told all of the friendlies on the Donahue panel, eh, it might be, not be a good idea to bring up Tom Cole's name. Which is also why, even though the name of the episode is something like, you know, Wrestling Rocked by Boy Sex Scandal or something like that, is why the Ring Boy stuff is barely brought up on Donahue. You know, I don't know why Donahue, Phil Donahue himself didn't bring it up more. But that's a big part of it um, because they don't want to bring up Tom Cole because they have this feeling. And then also, and no one knew what Tom Cole looked like. Everyone had only dealt with him over the phone. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And, and that's something you, you and Zellner talk about you know, throughout the, the podcast series is that there's, there's something like that where the Phil Donahue show is sort of titled about the Ring Boy scandal story. It's not talked about much. And there isn't that much coverage in mainstream media about this, you know, un- un- underage sex assault story, um, despite that being, you know, um, among the most egregious things that are in this in the slew of all of these scandals, which involve steroids, which got much more coverage uh, and things like that. It just seemed like the, the media didn't want to cover what was a very serious story at the time. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at the coverage from the time, when it comes to, like, specifically the Ring Boy stuff, mainstream-wise, it's the San Diego Union-Tribune. If you want to count the penthouse story later in the year, there's that. Um, There's the various New York Post stuff. There might be a little bit of the New York Daily News. But when it, like, national media wasn't really touching it. You know, the, the LA Times had a big story on the scandals that came out the same week as the Union Tribune story about the Ring Boy stuff, but it um, it was mainly about drugs and Hulk Hogan doing cocaine, and there's like a passing reference to the Ring Boy stuff that they put in, you know, before press time. But that's the most prominent like newspaper story about the scandals because I don't remember if there was a national edition of the LA Times then, but that story was 
fairly widely syndicated regardless. And it just doesn't really touch on the Ring Boy stuff. So it's you're limited to basically the Union Tribune story, New York tablo you know, daily tabloids, penthouse, tabloid TV show tabloid news shows on TV, you know, talk shows on TV and wrestling media. And I think we're all fairly close in age, the three of us. And like I was like seven in nineteen ninety two. I was not aware of any of this happening. And were, were you guys aware of, of any of this? Did that reach your your consciousness at, at that age? I mean not for ju- me. I'm in a unique situation though because I'm from Long Island and I'm listening to John Arezzi's radio show. Right. Big, 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 uh, did you learn how to read reading <laughs> wrestling newsletters? No, a little not before quite, that, almost. but I did no, I did get uh, my first trial of the Observer that summer, <laughs> and it was uh, it did include I think one of the issues covering the the penthouse thing or the fallout. I I didn't hear about this until Tom Cole was on the IATA show with with, with Dave Meltzer and Brian yeah. Alvarez, and I just remember like I was just floored that this happened in this company, and this is what two thousand I think he's doing this. Like we're not that far yes. removed from ninety two. And I'm just I'm floored that this is not more well known. And it was something like I sought out to like then I remember just buying like a comp tape on on eBay that had all of like the stuff that you can find on YouTube now. It was all on yeah. one VHS um, with all the different like tabloid magazine um, shows and the Donahue show uh, c- covering this uh, as well. But I mean, it's it's hard to look at like a, at the moment of like the the difference in terms of like the steroid thing, it just seemed to stick with people in a way this one didn't. And here we are in the past week and there's obviously so much attention on the case against WWE, the details in the suit. And here's Peter Thiel introducing like the enhanced games. We're going to do a, an Olympic style games with yeah. air, everyone juiced up. And it's like, it's applauded. It's like, Oh, this is a great idea. It's like that. It's, it's so different in terms of like the, the, the moral panic now when it comes to like, steroid use but that was that's what this became in the the 90s that became the the attention and seemed to be more prominent than like a child sex abuse scandal and and here we are like as i think you said bix like here's a company that this is its second trafficking scandal in its history how many companies survived to have a second trafficking scandal right like i asked on twitter like and i was like sincerely not joking like how many have one let alone two and, you know, someone mentioned the Abercrombie and Fitch thing from a couple months ago, which I had not seen until that point. But again, that's that's something that just, just came out, you know, and a lot of these other stories, like whether, you know, with Sean Combs or whatever, it's more about the individual than a company. Um, So it's like it's like when you really think about it, it's just insane. It's like the company like if. It's one thing to say if this happened now, the company wouldn't survive, but you can't really say that because the public can aspect and now the new parent company and all that. But still, like if the Bring Boy story happened today, it would be so much different in terms of coverage and stuff. You know, like I had been starting to feel like things were pretty bleak, but like I don't know if it's the details or whatever, but it, like clearly we're seeing there's a lot of mainstream media buy in right now as far as putting like real investigative reporters on this story. There, there's uh, a lot of that. Like as well, when we go to like the scandal of the early nineties as well, another name uh, that comes up, I think it was 
uh, a current affair. I might have the, the show wrong, but where the Mike Clark, who was one of the referees, also spoke about the fact that, you know, the stuff with Terry Garvin, like this was well known. It was like he was given a warning beforehand from the Canadian office. It was like this was not some like just contained secret. It like this was just open and known about as almost like a heads up that, you know, this is, you know, what you are stepping into. It just paints the scene here of this enclosed world that was one where you don't snitch, you don't speak out, and these are our own rules and bylaws that we hold ourselves to, and they're not connected to the outside world. And people bought into it, and they still some still do to this day. Like, you protect the industry. How many times do you hear that? And it applies yeah. to, like, these kinds of stories, too. You know, and what you said about the Canadian office, too, like, I'm going to choose my words carefully – like Jim Corderas's book has a whole section about a run-in with Ter- with Terry Garvin that got him lo- like all of a sudden losing a lot of his bookings and stuff. And you know he says he won't get into specifics because of, him be- of Garvin being deceased and stuff like that. But it's it's not hard to read into. I know he doesn't like it when people read into it, but it's kind of impossible to read it any other way. It um, other than you know something similar to like Mark Clark, Mike Clark situation. Um, you know, there was the nickname, the cream team for, you know, referees, wrestlers, ring crew members who were believed to be part of, you know, whatever casting couch culture there was. And it was a known enough thing within wrestling that there was a Maryland based indie tag team named the cream team. Professional wrestling. Uh, yeah. On, on display for everyone and, and how they handle. all. Yeah. Of like it's, you know, there's just so much here, but, you know, we want to make it clear, you know, like when we talk about it being their second trafficking scandal, when that, you know, original federal investigation started in 92, it was looking for man act violations, you know, with regards to the ring boy scandal. That's, that's sex trafficking. That's what man act violations are. So like, it's not surprise. Like it's everything, everything we're hearing is more shocking than surprising. Do we know? So they were investigated over sex trafficking of, of underage boys, right? Mm-hmm. Why were why why does it end up being the steroids that that they charged McMahon with? We don't rather know. Than, rather than that, I think I think we have at least a little more insight from those memos that I got reprocessed, where they had the redactions removed. Um, I mean, they in early '93 they tried to get in touch with Phillips to get him to turn on Vince. Which is just insane, but is what they were trying to do for whatever reason. Um, you think about that. You think about how blasé they are about the, you know, the video that we talked about earlier. Um, stuff like that. I, and then you think about like memos, other memos with from the FBI that are like in the FOIA responses, but also. Uh, you know, Sean Assail, Mike Mooneyham's book, Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, they had gotten, I think, a little bit more complete versions of some of them. There are points where they're just, like, stabbing in the dark, like, hey, what if we try to build a fraud case of defrauding advertisers or maybe the public on wrestling being fake or steroids or something? Not those exact words, but that's basically the idea. And to me, that screams that at some point, or maybe it was the original idea, I don't know, the idea behind the investigation turned into let's get Vince McMahon. 
because I don't know how else you can look at what happened, especially with how thin the charges against him were and how one had to get dismissed because it was physically impossible. Um, like that's the only thing I can think of is that for some reason they decided to specifically go after Vince, but they, the, and then the steroid distribution charge that had to get dismissed because it was very, you know, it was impossible and conspiracy to defraud the FDA. Like that was the way to get Vince. Now, why you're going to turn, like give immunity or a deal or whatever to the child molester to get Vince on that. I don't know. We're, it, like, were they privy to other stuff we don't know that maybe they couldn't prove? I mean, and they felt they had to get Vince. Sure, I guess that's possible. Um, you know, now Vince is the one that is the focus directly of a sex trafficking investigation. So anything's possible. I mean, one of the state's witnesses was, you know, it was the head of HR secretary or personal assistant, I guess, who, as soon as Vince found out she posed for Playboy, had her move to being his personal assistant and soon began an affair with her. So, you know, it, like, it's not like it's a stretch to think anything like that was happening back then, but we just don't know. And it just, I, it, but it poisoned the well too. Cause like everyone knows now, like the feds brought a terrible case. Like they brought an unwinnable case. And the only way you can even halfway make sense of it is they were trying to get Vince. We won't keep you uh, too much longer here, Bix, but just circling back to uh, Murray Hodgson that I think this individual, I mean, is so detrimental to this specific story because I think he is someone that the skeptic can look at and it extrapolates so many um, so many assumptions that are not borne out in these types of, of, of cases of somebody that essentially was just a, a guy that came in with a fraudulent story. And if you watch the Donahue show, sounds like this guy is going to be the bullet in the chamber against Vince McMahon, who has the most compelling speech right in front of Vince McMahon. And this guy turns out to essentially be a, a complete fraud. And I think it dismisses so many of the legitimate claims uh, th- that are made that I, I think like this individual to me was just so um, doesn't get enough scrutiny for his role here. And someone like this, that makes it so easy for the public that might already be skeptical or not wanting to believe these, that this is your, your entryway to just completely dismiss. Yeah. You know, like what happened was, you know, years later, um, his lawyer at Nussbaum told her, told her of much Nick, like, yeah, he was a, Lifelong con man. That was literally the phrase he used to describe him. Lifelong con man. And the details, I mean, these are from Jerry McDevitt, but in the context of this story, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume this is true, uh, or that he's telling the truth about this at least. Apparently, what they discovered about him was that he had made similar allegations against previous gay supervisors and other jobs, and that he had a habit of going into gay bars and trying to blackmail closeted men. So you had the picture of someone who, you know, if you're going to find someone who it's convinced you, it's convincing that they lied about all this. That's Murray Hodgson because of that history. Um, 
there is one thing that comes up in the Donahue episode that Vince doesn't refute and that at least in the other coverage, WWE doesn't refute, which is that he claims that I forget how many weeks it was before he was fired. He got like an employment verification letter for his landlord that was just glowing and, you know, and it does make me wonder a little if something really did happen. Maybe not what he said, because no one ever explains why, if he was this terrible announcer that was utterly failing, that they had to fire him after a few months, like why they would send this glowing proof of employment letter. And no one disputes that, but like, regardless, like he's someone who, even in the event he was telling the truth, he's someone who had such a history that him coming forward and had to know that it could have been found out was going to poison the well and make it look like he made it up and all that. And, you know, the one thing that was really striking, you know, and, you know, we talk about it on those Between the Sheets Titan Gate shows. He's sitting next to Rita Chatterton when she's on Geraldo and gives, you know, this, you know, much more lengthy, detailed, emotional, you know, version of her story than, you know, as opposed to like the weird, like edited version that was on Now It Can Be Told a week earlier. And you can tell that after she's done, Hodgson is shaking and realizing that he has badly screwed up this situation for her and others. Like every other appearance up to this point, he is the smooth talker. He destroys Vince in this argument on Donahue. You know, like he seemed as credible as anyone and he seemed as confident as anyone. And then after sitting next to Rita Chatterton, pouring her heart out for 10 minutes, he looks like he's seen a ghost. Like he looks like he is reconsidering his life choices. And I mean, I think that sums it up, you know, and then, you know, all this comes out in the wash in his deposition and he actually tries to keep the lawsuit going a little longer, but eventually it just kind of goes away. Um, but yeah, I mean, the damage he did and I, that it was specifically Patterson who in enough, like no one really liked Terry Garvin that much. No one really liked Mel Phillips, you know, away from all this. Patterson is someone who, in, in his context of, in, uh, and it's more so later, but still previously, like, was an idol to a lot of younger wrestlers, was someone that a lot of people adored. So that it's Pat Patterson specifically who he's bringing, you know, these apparently made up charges against really poisoned the well um, in a way that we're probably still trying to put the pieces back together now. Um and, you know, something I should add, too, just um, I regret, like, that I missed this previously, that I had I had another document that mentioned this, but I couldn't really confirm what it was. But eventually I realized I had the same thing in um, interviews that Phil Mushtick's lawyers had done with various witnesses. Like, according to Vince's limo driver, Jim Stewart, like, Patterson was the one who suggested bringing Phillips back in 88. Um whether he really knew entirely what was going on or not, who knows? But, you know, that's that's the story that Jim Stewart told. Um, so, like, between that, between what Tom Cole said, you know, it's it, there is stuff there. Um, and, you know, the thing we did want to talk about a little that uh, we didn't get to, I do 
think Patterson, uh, I do think there's something to the idea that some of his behavior was trying to make homophobes uncomfortable as a gay man who was in power. But it, if it started that way, it turned into something a lot uglier. Um, and the effects don't change regardless of what the intent was. Even if, if that was it, you know, the that as far as we know, nothing really happened after he came back, you know, is the only reason that makes me, you know, even consider that because I feel like if he was genuinely power tripping and trying to overcome people's will sexually, I feel like maybe it would have come up again, but I, I don't even like bringing it up. But the point is I bring it up because it's this defense that's raised, you know, by his friends and other people. But the point is either way, it doesn't matter. The end result is the same. So even if it was meant as a rib, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It doesn't really matter because the end result is, you know, assuming we believe these other more credible allegations, which I do, he is groping them. He is doing things that are traumatizing them. He is sexually harassing them. And regardless of what his intent was, even if his intent was, ha ha, what a rib, it doesn't matter. And I don't know if you can even uh, speak to it, if it was like a private conversation, but in later years, how, how did Tom Cole view like these three figures? Were they all like he had consistent feelings against all three of them? Did he hold some in yes. more contempt than others? I mean, obviously Phillips, it was the most complicated and to some degree traumatizing, but like, you know, I mean, it was, uh, I didn't talk to him about this as much, but you know, like it was, um, what's her name? Jamie Hemmings, right. From slam. Yes. That was talking to him a bit towards the end about how, you know, Patterson's death and the outpouring really did a number on him. And, you know, we, we ended up learning, you know, it, who knows what happens otherwise that, you know, Tom did take his own life, but it turned out he had a frontal lobe tumor, you know, and that maybe doesn't happen if that's caught earlier, but you know, there's just, there was just a lot, all of it, all of it bothered him. I think he felt, I think he felt like Garvin was dealt with the others. I think was, I think Patterson and the fact that people came not to believe and he did the Patterson stuff. And then the way he was kind of lionizing his death. And of course the Phillips stuff, I th- those seemed at least at that point to have the biggest impact on him. But again, this is someone who like, I'm not, I'm not trying to give it as a caveat, but it's like, it's, it's kind of hard to process knowing that he's also dealing with this serious brain tumor and has no idea. Yeah. You know? The final one for me is when Vince McMahon comes out of this, do you feel that, well, I, I don't feel this is a case. You would think on the surface that you come through something like this and your company not only survives, but in the years forward thrives that this was kind of a scared straight moment. And it would seem like with Vince McMahon, when you look at the, at the steroid trial at going against WCW, like this is someone that just felt emboldened that I think this gave him, this insulated him from the idea that anything uh, can can bring me down. And I think that is what takes us to the present of Vince McMahon. And that is what, I mean, this is in a post, you know, you know, 
Me Too environment, like here was Vince McMahon that was just emboldened to feel that he was untouchable. And I think like what were there any lessons learned from from this period? I would argue no. I mean, that's what it seems like, you know. Um you know, like one thing we should probably talk about too is, you know, the the former wrestler who got the seven and a half million dollar settlement, um she did not come forward at the time, you know, in 2005, she came forward in 2018, which is, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm guessing probably early 2018 around when me too is really blowing up. Right. Um, I'm sure the fact that she was recognizable and had been on TV and the timing probably contributed to that settlement. And the fact that he ends up not really having to deal with anything coming out of me too, I think, um, I probably also emboldened him. Uh, I mean, look, what, what can you say about in around that time? We're talking about 2018 or so. What was, was there going to be maybe a report or something like that, that would have talked about, you know, Vince's uh, alleged sexual harassment at that time. So it, there is a thing that is known within some wrestling circles. I mean, definitely among some women in the business and major promotions, and also in media circles, there was an attempt at a New York Times investigation in late 2017, early 2018. Um, what I know is there were 13 women who came to the Times kind of as a group. Um, they started the work on it. And in time, the fact that the reporter reporters who were working on it um, – that they didn't seem to know wrestling and really as a result had trouble kind of really understanding some of the things that the performers were telling them. It gave the women who came forward cold feet as far as going on the record. Like they, they lost trust in the process as a result and the article just didn't happen. Um, And then NDAs happen after that. At least. And we don't know as far as the, the, you know, the wrestler who would have, you know, who came forward around that time. It's possible. I mean, yeah. Is it possible that this is, that that happened around the time the story was being worked on and maybe even used as leverage? I mean, I, I specifically mean that, just one. I'm not, I'm not saying that multiple happened because of this. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, no, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Like, I think it's, I think it's entirely possible that the idea of a looming New York Times story, especially since the Times was one of the two outlets that, you know, took down RV Weinstein, basically, I would think that would be some very strong leverage if you were going to try to make a demand. Like, I don't know for sure, but it certainly lines up if something like that happened. And then, you know, we look at the timeline, it's like, you know what, like the next calendar year that the Janelle Grant stuff starts. So does that mean he was more emboldened and then we get this horrific story? I mean, maybe. Because now we're in a sense like this, this is certainly a moment with this company under a very intense spotlight that if there is a second guessing of someone coming forward that maybe was reluctant to. And I include going back to the like the, the unfortunate part of the early 90s scandal is so many of these people are no longer around. But um, like this is something that to me, it's. There's so much that can be tied in from the early 90s to the, this current one of 
that people that are out there that can speak about this. And it seems that now there there is the attention of some of these larger outlets that are now kind of looking underneath the rock to see what is there to be found. And if things have changed enough from that 2017, 2018 period where there is a better understanding of, of this industry. But again, like we always come back to like pro wrestling, like if, if this is not a publicly traded company, this like the wall street journal isn't touching this. And even in the early nineties, like, again, this sort of had a ceiling of tabloid news talk shows, and it didn't really cross that threshold, at least as it related to the ring boy scandal. Like it just seems as though, um, you know, there is, there is still that, I don't know, it, it skirts by, um, even, even with the most heinous allegations that, that are out there, maybe this changes in what we're going through right now, but maybe it doesn't, maybe this, like if there is no indictment and there's a settlement that that's reached, does this all just quietly go away? And there aren't, there isn't that reckoning that I think many have looked at. And this, this goes back so many decades. At least in, in contrast, the, the mainstream outlets that are covering this are the Wall Street Journal, um, Vice, which didn't exist at the time in 1992, but uh, NBC did did at least confirm independently that what that that there's a federal investigation happening. And I, I just noticed the other day too that ABC also independently confirmed that there's a federal investigation happening. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, you know what? That brings up something else too, which is even though the company's bigger now. I don't know if WWE would be nearly as adept at killing stories today as they were back then. You know, summer of 92, AEW's Alex Marvez was an intern at the New York Times. He was working on a Titan Gate story for the New York Times and got so inundated with legal threats from Jerry McDevitt that they basically just decided they were going to wash their hands of it and not do the article. There was that. There was, in late 93, uh, NBC News was working on a story for new primetime show. Eventually got kind of made part of Dateline, but it was a separate show at the time. I forget the name. And, you know, the whole they tried to get that videotape we talked about earlier. And that was kind of – and that got killed in part because Marty Bergman, you know, secret fiancé of Vince's lawyer, Laura Vervetti, uh planted a story in the New York Observer about how dirty and corrupt the story was and how, you know, NBC maybe had an inappropriate relationship with the the Justice Department and you know, the investigators and this might be their next exploding trucks disaster and all that. Like, they were very adept at killing stories. It's like, it's something that made the calls, you know, particularly Lee, but I think also Tom Reddison to come forward again at different times was that when they would get their hopes up about, like, real big stories, they would get killed. I mean, look. I mean, Your, your it, Business it, Insider article, Bix, like, you dealt with this firsthand. Like, they they came for you. Yeah, I mean, well, I should tell the story then. So this is not something that's in the article. But I had sent, you know, requests for comment to WWE. Jeremy McDevitt ends up coming back with this letter, um, in, it, which is a very Jeremy McDevitt letter. And parts of it are quoted in the article. Um, but as far as me personally, what you're alluding to, um, you know, I get a call the day before it drops. I'm just, I'm walking through, uh, Union Square Park and, you know, John Cook calls me to kind of just go over all of the final stuff. John Cook being the 
you know, main investigations editor there, you know, formerly Gawker, formerly, you know, Gizmodo Media lead investigations editor, former editor in chief of The Intercept. So he's seen, he's seen a lot. Um, and he's telling me that Brian Flynn, who was the head of communications for WWE at the time, called, I believe, him and also the editor in chief of Insider to basically, like, call me a charlatan who was selling them a bill of goods and they were going to get embarrassed and all that. You know? So, like, I, I said this at the time, like, I don't, I'm not normally someone who celebrates when someone loses their job, but with Brian Flynn, yeah, I kind of did. And you deny being a charlatan. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know if he used the word charlatan, but it's the best description I can come up with of what was relayed to me. Um, and in you my know, head, like, that so- will be the word that was used. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Charlatan is UK, a, great band, though. In a serious note, like this was the response um, that they gave you for your article on the record. Uh, an attorney for WWE told Insider that the accusations against Mel Phillips were about a foot fetish and did not include anything approximating conventional forms of sexual abuse, such as rape, sodomy, etc. That line to me, like, smacked me in the face when I read your article for the first time. That, that to me is some really poor wordplay. Uh, oh, like, to write the in, write out the words conventional forms of sexual abuse, such forms. as rape, sodomy, etc. And then I, did, instead, I didn't know that there were conventional forms and in conventional forms. Yeah, and saying, yeah, instead, and I don't remember why they took Tom's name out of this part, even though we mentioned his name in the article. And said Tom Cole claimed Mel Phillips had a foot fetish and played with his feet. So yeah, I mean it's what I said earlier. Like, you know, and then uh, yeah, he described allegations that the McMahons were aware of the accusations against Phillips while continuing to pay him as ring announcer, as quote outlandish and quote classic libel. Um, and then you know later, like we know, he did, didn't, did they sue you for a classic libel? Nope. Um, and honestly, there have been some times where I was a little worried uh, with other people, but like I, I had no anxiety in like as the year was ticking down after this that they were going to sue me. No. Um, I did make sure, however, because it was not in the original freelance contract, though, that after we got the letter back from uh, Jerry that they did draft a new one, that it did indemnify me, though. We did. I did make sure to do that. <laughs> um so even if I had been sued, it would have been uh, it would have been insider on the hook for legal fees and stuff. Thankfully, how much how much does that inform your own individual reporting, Bix? Because this is something I think all three of us have had discussions about in terms of like you know we do not have legal we do not have legal forces behind us. We do not have a parent company, and you know you are in that situation. Um, you know one of one of the like individuals like involved in the, in this reporting like a number of years ago wanted to come on with me and it and basically share details that another outlet was not as they did not want to include in their publishing and it's like these are the things i have to weigh as well in terms of like where the responsibility is when you're independent media and and you don't have a large outlet uh, behind you and you Bix, have the experience of working with a lot of these bigger outlets but you also do stuff on your own oh it's it absolutely has an effect and i hate that it does um it's awful but it's a reality that you're putting yourself into like it's it would be very easy to just like avoid all of this stuff and but it's like that is sort of like the what, what you do have to balance uh in, in all of this and be as responsible as you can but you know at, at time if someone has it out that they want to come for you like there's there's nothing that stops you from that 
Yeah, I mean, one thing we should make clear, too, because I don't think people always fully understand this. You can be 100% right, and the lawsuit can be completely baseless. That doesn't necessarily mean you'll get your legal fees back. No. That's that's the problem. Like, it, there are some states where it's better. The cabana bunk, bunk suit. Like, they... They were there was no the- loser pays provision there whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like, it, it, as far as, like, other stuff like that, you know, when Chris Dickinson, you know, sued his ex-girlfriends for saying he was abusive, he made a point of suing in New Jersey for reasons that could only be understood as because they did not have, you know, what's called an anti-slap statute, strategic lawsuit against public participation, where, like, Look, um, it ends up coming out that he had sent one of them an Instagram message admitting to shoving her into a wall. So at that point, like, there's no, it, there's no reason for, it, like, there's no defamation lawsuit because he admitted it. But, like, where was I going with this? Um, if, if if we can bring this back to to, to the yeah, Titan Gate and and how this relates to today, like, what what do we learn at least as as people on the outside watching this this happen, looking back on 1992? What happened, I would say, particularly with the, with the Ring Boy scandal, I think what it tells you about what's happening today is that you have a company in one part of its history being complacent about a series of sexual harassment uh, and, and sexual assault uh, allegations. And, and today, something very similar happening under the same leader. As far as the media coverage? As far as well, – no, as, as far as Vince being being – uh, oh, having knowledge, like, having knowledge, say? and have, being complicit about a sexual harassment case, and and today actually being the allegedly the perpetrator of one. I mean, it's the, you know the phrase I keep using is institutional rot. Like there are clearly a lot of layers here that we can't even begin to wrap our heads around. You know, it's like look, what have I been dwelling on on Twitter lately? You know, like. It doesn't read great that, you know, since Sarah Amato went on maternity leave two plus years ago, and then once Allison Danger got let go, there's not been a full-time female coach at the Performance Center. Period. You know, like, given all this and the talk about safeguarding and stuff, like, that's a concern. And you find yourself wondering, why is this the case? Like, there's no telling what the different levels to this are, you know, like. Terry Taylor's at the Performance Center. Terry Taylor's a Triple H guy. Terry Taylor is also someone who's been accused in not not necessarily in court, but accused of sexual harassment. You know, was it, it Conan? I think who talked about him like looking at Playboy or or outright porn in the office at TNA and stuff. Like, we don't know. Like, there could be stuff here that's even very disconnected from Vince in the top level. Like, we just don't know, but because it's, you know, there's all this, again, you know, institutional rot, institutional lack of control, whatever you want to call it, there, it, it's like, yeah, of course, like, it's, again, none of this surprised me. The idea that Vince McMahon was, in, you know, in this relationship where he was engaging coercive control over this woman and abusive and all these ways, like, the details are shocking, but like after everything else we've heard, after rumors we've heard, after things we've seen on TV that feel like they can tie into all this, I wasn't surprised. I mean, honestly, there's very little that would surprise me. There are certain people, 
with good reputations being involved that would surprise me. But otherwise, it's like, not really. Well, we hope that this has served as a kind of an overview of a really important um, story in WWF and professional wrestling's uh, history. And as we've mentioned, I would encourage everyone to go to patreon.com slash between the sheets, and you can listen to the four part Titan gate series. Uh, this was uh, just put up for free for everybody to go uh, check out. And I can't recommend this enough. If you, found this to be an interesting discussion and you want to learn more and dig deeper you can't go much deeper uh, than this four-part series and um after you listen to it i would definitely um for a palate cleanser check out the finger poke of doom uh episode <laughs> and, that, and that's uh some some levity in uh pro wrestling's past um but well, and just to be clear by the way like it's not just on the patreon unlock for free it is on the regular feed that's on itunes and everything now too right so you can subscribe to between the sheets um on your podcast app of choice uh you can follow him at david bix on x and uh, anything else you want to uh, throw out there that you are working on um not really right now that i can think of um i mean i will mention because it does kind of this was a coincidence. I, we planned for this month ago, but uh, you know our Patreon this month, our Patreon show this month, I should say, at patreon.com slash between the sheets is uh, it's going to be Missy Hyatt's sexual harassment lawsuit against WCW because it was 30 years ago this month that she got fired. And then several weeks later files her EEOC complaint. And there's a lot more there than I think people realize. All right. Well, that will be the uh, the next deep dive uh, for David Bixenspan and Chris Zellner. So uh, we want to thank you a lot, Bix, for uh, spending so much time with us on on this uh, very, very important story. And uh, I, I think your your reporting has been tremendous over the years uh, covering this. And hopefully that this is something that people are, are more aware of beyond just like kind of the uh, the Coles Notes version. It's a very complex story, but one that I, I think it's all out there too. I mean, it is very accessible to uh, find a lot of th this coverage and different media at the time that were covering this story, but I would certainly send people to uh, the work of David Bixen's man to put it all in the right context uh, for you, the viewer out there, but thanks very much, Bix for joining us. Thank you for thanks, having Bix. me. All right. Uh, before we get out of here, Brandon on this, uh, this marathon show, um, one super chat here. I want to ask John and Brandon in regards to John Laurinaitis. People on Twitter are saying that he is cooperating with the feds on the Vince investigation. Is there any truth to it? Uh, do, you, do you want to field this one, Brandon? This is I, I um, think that is that is speculation. That, that could yes. be the case because he has he has he is claiming John Laurinaitis is claiming to be a victim of Vince. I mean, that that could mean that he's cooperating with the with the feds. But there's no specific report to that that I'm aware of. Yes. Um, pretty much all we have to go on is uh, through his lawyer, Edward Brennan, who did give a response to uh, among the outlets uh, to, to Vice News to Tim Marchman, um, just, you know, confirming that he is representing John Laurinaitis and the, and at least from Edward Brennan's perspective, that John Laurinaitis, uh, too, was a, a victim in this entire case. But lots more to uh, to come on that front. So we are going to say goodbye to everyone. Because I'm back in a couple of hours. This is almost the lead-in for Dynamite tonight. Uh, Way and I will be up tonight. You want to just stay on the air till then? Might just, might just go through all the, all the way. 10.05 Eastern tonight on the Post YouTube channel. 
And then coming up Sunday for members at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Brandon, I'm not even going to ask you what you're going to be talking about on Sunday because there's going to be like five more things of significance between now and Sunday. That's that's my impression. No shortage of things to talk about. Uh, ESPN, according to John Cena, and I, I've seen this uh, reported by Alex Sherman and elsewhere, ESPN has, has announced that their, their streaming service for standalone direct-to-consumer ESPN, that's coming out in the fall of 2025. They're doing their earnings call right now. Oh, okay. So we've got quickly do you, do you have like the the elevator summary of this new streaming service that Fox, Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery are putting together? This is going to be something that will include all of TNT and TBS programming when it is rolled out. Yes, all, all of your I'm Big really Bang putting theory. you on the spot here. My apologies. No, all, all of your Big Bang Theory uh, reruns, all of your uh, you know reruns of the film The Accountant. You'll finally be able to watch that as part of a, a streaming service. It's going to include all these channels you're watching here on on video. So, so it's Disney and all the ESPN channels, all of the WBD TNets. If you know what the TNets are TNT, TBS, and True TV, and Fox. Yes, it's very much like Hulu. Um, you have Disney. WBD, Fox with FS1, FS2, and Big uh, Big Ten Network, uh, as well as the SEC Network, the ACC Network, ESPN News, ESPN Plus. They'll all be part of this. Um, sounds like it's – and we don't know when it's going to launch, what it's going to be called. Uh, How much it will cost? Probably in the high $30 per, per month to start, it sounds like. Um, yeah, I, I, for me, I, I might cancel Sling and, and subscribe to this, but it's, it's these traditional – networks conglomerates getting together much like it was the case with hulu to to offer basically an over the basically a streaming service that will be the traditional tv networks so this will mean but most importantly for wrestling fans this will mean that dynamite and collision and rampage would be on this service this ring of honor work its way into this is this just the the cherry on top of the service no. that, that you get ring of honor? <laughs> i doubt it all right. We'll uh, maybe spend some more time talking about this uh, next week, but there's going to be plenty to talk about uh, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, so thanks to everyone for, for tuning in. Again, a big thank you to David Bixenspan for joining us. And that will wrap up another edition of Pollock and Thurston. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.